Well, welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through the doctrines of our faith, using as our guide our statement of faith as a church, which is the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. Very comprehensive uh, confession. And uh, so through that, we cover all the major doctrines and uh, divert ourselves a few times, I've been known to do that, <laughs> to hit some of the minor doctrines that are associated as we go. Uh, kind of to mention, we don't hit every doctrine, but we hit uh, most doctrines as we go through it. And we have begun again, uh, or I should say, begun anew, and maybe that's better, uh, to start from the beginning again. So we're working our way through chapter 1, which is of the scriptures. Uh, and this chapter is, uh, just one more time, is very important because uh, everything else, every other doctrine that we're going to discuss is based on the scripture. So if we're going to use the scripture as our guide for what we believe, then of course we must believe the scripture. So um, that's why this confession begins with chapter 1 of the scriptures. And we've been working our way through um, different aspects and paragraphs. We're in paragraph 6, which is the sufficiency of scripture. And uh, let me just back up and I'll read that paragraph again and then we'll catch back up to where we are here. Okay. So paragraph six, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the Church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. So there's a number of things that they're hitting in this paragraph. Um, it is basically about the sufficiency of Scripture. But obviously, as we talked about before, the Scripture is not sufficient to all things. It does specify which things the Scripture is sufficient to. It is not sufficient as a mathematics textbook. Is there math in the Scripture? Yes. Is there science in the Scripture? Absolutely. Is there, I don't know, you name it, any subject you can think of, is there auto repair in the Scripture? No, there is not. But are there some principles in Scripture about cars? Well, yeah, you could derive some. It's a stretch. But you could derive some principles from uh, the Scripture regarding any area of life. So the point is, the Scriptures are sufficient for these things. God's glory, man's salvation, faith, and life. That's what the Scriptures are sufficient for. They're enough of what we need to know for those subjects. So, then we began breaking that down. We talked about the scope of its sufficiency, and now we are continuing in the scope of its sufficiency. And we actually just talked about, let me go back here. We talked about individually how it's sufficient and corporately how it's sufficient. So now we're just going to have a few more thoughts about that sufficiency. So, first of all, soul sufficiency, which is the whole idea of this, is to achieve the purposes of redemptive revelation without new revelations or traditions by men. So, the idea of soul sufficiency is it alone, scriptures alone, are all that's needed for man to be saved. In other words, there's not something additional that we have to get to do this. Now, you, you know, right off the bat, if you think about that statement, um, well, what would you think of that man has added in some, not that we've added it, but let's say maybe some other religions Maybe start with, I don't want to say their name, Roman Catholics. So any, some other religions, they have added things to salvation, right? So you can think of basically works salvation, right? What is works salvation? Well, works salvation is usually not only works, right? Works salvation is not, I mean, I'm, there is certainly none that I can think of that can say, you can say that they are a Christian religion that is purely works, None that I can think of that are purely works. They're always faith and works. Faith and works, right? Now, there are Far Eastern religions that are all works, not Christian religions. But in Christian religions, there are many, several, let's say, that couple faith with works. Well, if works are required, this is 
Simple axiom. If works are required, the scriptures aren't sufficient. Does that make sense? If works are required, scripture isn't sufficient. Scripture isn't enough. That would mean faith isn't enough. That would mean faith isn't enough. That would mean that now you have a significant problem, don't you? How much is enough? What counts? What if you did something that you should do, but you didn't do it with the right attitude? Does that count? Do you get 50% credit for that? How does that work? What is the scale? How does that work out? Well, other religions have had to come up with that scale. You get so much for this. You get so much for that. You get so much to do this. If you don't do this, that's going to count against you this much. You can see this becomes a huge deal. And this is why in the Roman Catholic Church, they've had to come out with continuous councils and, and dorts. I'm sorry. Uh, council of dorts is the one I'm thinking of. The councils and papal bulls to say this is what the rules look like. This is how it works. This is what kind of credit you get. This is how we're going to cover you in these cases. And don't forget that the Pope has exclusive access to the treasure house of blessings and mercy. And what can he do? He can dispense those to whoever he wants to. So, hey, you never know. You show up someplace, boom, you get a blessing, no time in purgatory. You go straight to heaven. Nice, huh? Unless you sin again. Then back to purgatory. So, I was at a place, papal bull. We had a plenary blessing, so we, we're not going to have to go to purgatory. Until we got prideful about that, and then back to purgatory. So anyway, the whole idea of soul sufficiency is nothing else is needed, right? So works is easy to think of that, but sometimes we don't think about it besides works, right? So we don't think about, when you say so well, yeah, scripture alone, yep, absolutely. And then we kind of tack stuff on. We don't think about it. All right, what, so you get saved. What's the first thing someone should do when they get saved? Go ahead. Don't, you're not going to be wrong. Say it. Baptize. What if you don't get baptized? Going to heaven? Yeah. Going to heaven. Well, what if they don't join the church? What if they don't study their Bible? What if they can't quote the 1689? What if they don't have the Apostles' Creed memorized? You, you know, it's, it's ridiculous, right? It's, it's ridiculous. But this is where people go. Like, they, they, they make some kind of judgment in their mind. Well, that person, you know. Really? Really? What is needed? Faith. Where do we see that? Scripture. What's the Scripture tell us is needed? Faith. Faith. Repentance should be part of that. Should be part of it. We're not going to get into the Ordo Salutis right now. We will, but not, not during this chapter. All right. Nothing is to be added to the Scriptures as additional counsel of God. So the confession starts out by talking about the counsel, whole counsel of God. Nothing is to be added to that. That means that those uh, edicts that come out from church groups and things like this, those would, if they say this is equivalent to Scripture, or it's Deuterocanon, second canon of Scripture, all of those things that they're adding, the confession is saying, no, can't do that. You can't make some statement of man and equate it with Scripture. Doesn't this just naturally make sense? Can you see how when you go through the logic of it that you have to make some pretty big leaps to not see that some man who, by the way, was a sinner just like you and I, some man can make a statement and it just has to be universally accepted as new revelation from God. So this is a big challenge. Now, if you don't think it's a big challenge, you haven't talked to very many Christians today. Because Christians all over the place believe that's happening today. Do you know any? If you've been at this church for more than a couple years, you know a couple who aren't here anymore. Why? Well, because the pastors that they were listening to on the Internet had new revelations from God and were not preaching those things. So we're not a good church. And they're gone. That's how it happens. God has told me to do this. And now what do they just do? Additional counsel of God. It's additional counsel of God. Can you understand that if you had a new message from God, the scriptures are not sufficient? 
Now you could say, well, I feel like the Spirit is leading me in this direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's the way it's supposed to work. Scriptures tell us that that's the way it's supposed to work. But if you say, well, I got a message from God. Really? So the Scriptures weren't enough. You needed to have a direct message too. That's what you're saying by saying that. So you see how easy it is for people to get into that mode? So here's the big problem. We talk about the canon of Scripture. Who determined this? We just talked about this two weeks ago. Who determined the canon of Scripture? Was it, a per- was it there one person? No. No. Was it Arius? No. Alexander? Tertullian? Origen? Any early church fathers? I'll throw out a few names. You know, name dropping. I don't know them all. Anyway. <laughs> was it any of them? No. It was the church. The church determined if a book was to be included in the canon of Scripture. Can you see why that's a safe thing? Yes. Why? Because it's not one person saying, I heard this message and this is from God. All right. Let's just name two of them right off the bat. People that said they had a message from God and they created a cult. Mary Baker Eddy. Joseph Smith. Heard a message from God. How do we know? Because I'm telling you so. Because this is what was revealed to me. You see a problem there? Yeah, the big problem is, is that there's no check against that. What would keep you from saying that yourself? Now, you say, well, I feel like one time God did hear from God. Ooh, ooh, easy. See me afterwards. <laughs> Here's the point. In well-intentioned or not well-intentioned, your mind is corrupt. Sorry, but it is. You don't have perfect thoughts. You don't have sinless thoughts. Your flesh is absolutely corrupt. Scripture tells us that. Your flesh is corrupt. It is only the grace of God and the working of the Holy Spirit in you that you do anything that's good. Anything. Now, if you don't think that's true, you just sin in pride. Because it's true. It's true for every one of us. We all sin, right? Yes. You can shake your head yes on that one. We all sin. Some more than others. Like Tom. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, right? We all sin. We all sin. We all have big problems, don't we? We tend to think nobody else has a problem, but we got a big problem. And we actually sometimes feel like, I'm like the worst guy here. I'm the worst girl here. Why? Because I, I got this thing that I'm struggling with all the time. Okay, let me just tell you, everybody is. Everybody is. Everybody in this room is struggling with sin all the time. All the time. Now, if they're not, they don't feel like they're struggling with sin, that's not good. Because they are sinning. And the Spirit should be making them struggle with that fact. If we all deal with that all the time, how do these other people have this word from God that no one can question? Have you ever met anyone perfect who said they're perfect? I've met, I mean, I've definitely known saints through the years that I thought, man, that person. And you say, you know, you are just a mentor to me. I, you know, put your example. I appreciate you. They'll say, don't, don't use me as an example. I've had that happen many times. I remember one, you know, Larry Porter. At first, Babsville appeared. That guy, upright guy, do anything for anybody all the time, right? And I heard him say numerous occasions when someone say, man, I really appreciate you and everything you do. You know, you're a great example to everybody. He'll say, don't use me as an example. I'm a sinner, struggling with sin all the time. There is no one that isn't. So for us to say that somebody can say that they have a message from God and just not question it is a problem. It's a problem. That's why the confession 350 years ago said nothing can be added. Is it a new problem? No, it's not a new problem. It had been added to numerous times. 
So they wrote in the confession to make sure it's clear, nothing can be added. We'll look at the scripture. By the way, this does not mean, because of soul sufficiency, that all we need to know about the doctrines in the confession are stated explicitly. Let me make that statement again, just to make sure you're catching what I'm saying here. You're picking up what I'm laying down. This does not mean that all we need to know about the doctrines in the confession are stated explicitly in the Scripture. In other words, what may be by sound logic deduced from Scripture has the authority of Scripture itself. So, what do I mean? Let's use the, one of the simplest examples that we talk about all the time, and that's the Trinity. Right? So, is there a chapter in the Bible that explicitly explains the Trinity? There is not. There is not a passage of Scripture that explicitly explains the Trinity. None. But, by sound logic, we can deduce that there is a Trinity. Is the word Trinity in Scripture? No. Are there many examples of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes, there are. From Genesis to Revelation. Examples through the Scripture. So, by sound reasoning, we can deduce that there is a Trinity, three persons of the Godhead, one God, three persons. How does that work? He's God. We're human. We're not going to get it 100%. But we can still reason that it's true. Do you see what I mean? And that's not the that, that's an easy one, because we know that one. Many, many doctrines deduced from scriptures because we can see it explained in different places. And if it's all true, then that this sound and logical conclusion must be true. That's how we do that. So all right, let me give you a second one. I'll give you another one right now. Because it just came up. We just talked about this earlier this week. Or no, last week. So uh, church membership. Church membership. Is, does the New Testament contain a passage that explicitly explains church membership? No, there isn't any. In fact, if you read our own constitution about church membership and the warrant for church membership, it is an explanation of the passages of Scripture where we see these things all put together equals church membership. So is there a verse that says you must join a local church? No, there's not a verse that says that. But we do see all these passages that talk about how the individual believers must be in a body where the different gifts can work together as joints of a body in order for the body to function. We do see Christian believers putting themselves in a position where they're under authority of elders, of shepherds, and that if necessary, that they are disciplined. Right? Those are just two. There's many. Look at our Constitution again to remind yourself, if you want to, about that aspect church membership so how do we come up with that we deduce it from scripture now we didn't we didn't come up with it right first baptism appeared it no they didn't come up with it either church membership has existed since the early church fathers we see them writing about it we see them writing about it now they had a much more formal process than we do like you could not if you were in a city Maybe we shouldn't call it a city. If you were in a town, they were smaller. If you're in a town, right, and you're a believer, you're a part of the local body of believers. That's it. There was no, well, I'm going to go across the street to this church instead. There wasn't another one. There was one. There was one. Now, when you got to some of the bigger, like Rome was bigger. When you get to Rome, then they started having local bodies. Definitely true. Alexandria, other churches. Jerusalem, one church. Jerusalem, one. Down, pretty big town. The warrant for church membership was true then. It was true then. Certainly true today. With many, many, many more churches. And distinctions about beliefs. Okay. Let's look at a few verses. First of all, we're not going to read the ones under the bullet point number, footnote number nine, because those you should have looked up. When you read, did your homework, and you read chapter, I'm sorry, paragraph 6, 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17, and Galatians 1, 8 and 9. But we will look at the other verses, because these are supplemental. 
All right. And uh, you can see, you can turn to any of these you'd like to turn to. They're all good. <laughs> if anybody ever says, here's a bunch of scripture references, but they're not all that good. <laughs> Red flag should go. <laughs> Lights should spin in front of your eyes right then. All right. So let's start with Deuteronomy 4.2. You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. Now this is Moses speaking, and what is he saying? He's saying, look, you can't add to the word of God. So this is just the beginning. We see an example here. Acts 20, verse 20 and verse 27. And how I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you, but have showed you and have taught you publicly and from house to house. For I have not shunned to declare unto you the, all the counsel of God. So here we see this explanation that the, all the counsel of God is what he preached to them. Was there additional counsel that he was personally delivering? No, he was delivering all the counsel of God. Psalm 19.7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. If the word of God is not sufficient, it is not perfect. Psalm 119.6, Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. It's not to all the commandments that you have revealed. It's to all thy commandments. Why? Because he's revealed them all. Psalm 119, verses 9 and 104. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And then Psalm 119, verse 128. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right and hate every false way. Okay, so notice only one passage from the New Testament, all these Old Testament passages about the word of God, which was not complete yet. And yet we see this recognition that whatever God has revealed is God's word. That's it. That's the whole counsel. Did God use, in the Old Testament, after Psalm was written, did he reveal more? Yes. Christ came after that, right? So we say yes. How about in the Old Testament, before the intertestamental period, when there was still, you know, we're between the prophets and the New Testament, after Psalm, was there more prophets? Yes, there was. Absolutely there was. A number of prophets, ending with Malachi, the last book in our version of the Old Testament. Why I say our version? Because I mean the way that we ordered it. Talked about that before, right? That's not the way that the Jews ordered the Old Testament. But there were additional prophets that gave the word of God. Now, even the Jews believe that after Malachi, God has not revealed anything else. That's it. They don't believe anyone can add. It doesn't matter who it was and how good they were. Nobody else could add to the word of God. That did not stop them from coming up with more rules. Christ railed on them about that, did he not? All the rules of men that they made the most important thing, even more important than Scripture, right? They did it continuously. All right, the mode of this sufficiency. So how does that work? Well, it's this part of the paragraph we're focusing in on here. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. So how does that work? How do we actually see the sufficiency of Scripture to tell salvation? It is only through the work of the Spirit of God, the illumination of the Spirit of God. All right, so let's talk about revelation versus illumination just to make sure that we get this, right? So we're talking about two aspects, and this is what we're talking I want to... I don't want to explain them when I've got it on the board. Let's just use the slide and work through it. So revelation would be like the word of God, right? God has revealed this to us. What, how, what reflects revelation? Well, revelation, first of all, is infallible. Right? This is God directly saying this. This is not something that we try to understand what he meant by this. This is him directly saying, look, this is what I'm saying. It's revealed directly. It's God giving his message directly to a prophet or an apostle. It's God speaking through men to other men, to us. How does that work? We'll have to ask him in heaven. What do, you, what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. So, 
when Moses, God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to say this. There's several examples where God directly tells Moses, go to the people and say this, right? So when Moses goes to the people to say this, how did he get it perfect? He was just really good. This is a guy who said he had a problem speaking. You remember this? Before he went to Egypt, he said he had a problem speaking. So how did that work? Like, did he know, like, did he have the thought and then he said it? The Spirit told him in his mind what to say and then he said it? Or was he just saying it and then it's like he didn't even know he said it? We don't know. We don't know. We'll have to find out. It's a good question. You write that down in your heaven book. You could ask that question when you take that book. Anyway, the revelation of God is complete and final. The revelation of God is complete. It's not ongoing at this point. It is complete and final. What is illumination? Well, illumination is entirely personal. This is the working of the Spirit in you. It's entirely personal. It's my understanding of Scripture applied to me. My understanding of Scripture applied to me. Do you see a problem right there? My understanding of Scripture. Who in this room believes they are a great biblical scholar? Keep your hand up. Who thinks, no. Who thinks in this room they are a great biblical scholar? Well, nobody, right? So when you have the illumination of the Spirit in your, in your personal life, is it possible that your understanding of the Scripture that's being illuminated by the Spirit may be less than perfect because you don't have enough knowledge? Right? Yes, that could be, couldn't it? And I don't know if this has ever happened to anybody else. It certainly happened to me. I feel like I should do something, and I convince myself it's the Spirit, and then I realize later that wasn't the Spirit. Does that ever happen to anybody? You think that the Spirit's leading you to do something or say something, and then it goes horribly awry. And you realize that wasn't what was supposed to happen there. I actually did not do what the Scriptures tell me to do in this case. I was doing what I thought I should do. Why? Imperfect. Imperfect. Make a mistake. Illumination is ongoing and continual. It's ongoing and continual. This is something that should be happening to you through your sanctification, through your whole life. You should be illuminated by the Spirit. Now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying, I'm not even inferring that you should be continuously illuminated. Like right now, you're being illuminated and then on your way upstairs, you're illuminated. And then in the car on your way home, you're illuminated. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying that this should happen to you all the time. And we should be. Our desire should be for us to be illuminated by the Spirit. But that, that we should want this. Some people will call this, I think it's a, good, it's a good descriptive term, being sensitive to the Spirit. Heard of that before? You know, being sensitive to the Spirit. Now this does not mean... Unfortunately, I've seen this too. That somehow we get ourselves into the state where we're acting on our emotions all the time. You know, the Spirit doesn't just illuminate you emotionally. The Spirit also illuminates you intellectually. Right? Now, this is a danger that this is this is a danger that you can see sometimes when you're listening to another preacher. So, if you're listening to a preacher who all the time tries to play on people's emotions to get his message across. That's a danger. That's, essentially, that's manipulating them. It's pushing their buttons. There should be more than that. And your spirit should let you know, whoa, what's happening here? You should be a little illuminated in this case. Why isn't he using logic of scriptures to explain as well as the emotions? We are made with both aspects, are we not? Intellect and emotion, both. And the Spirit should work in us in both cases. Look, if it's only intellect, then you become stoic and have no grace. If it is all emotion, you are easily turned astray because your emotions lead you in a wrong direction. There's no logic or foot or basically firm foundation behind it. 
because your emotions just lead you a different direction. If all you ever hear from somebody is an emotional plea for something without the logic of Scripture backing them up, they are not preaching God's Word. Watch out for that. Easy for this to happen. You see it all the time. So watch out for it. The Spirit's ongoing and continual illumination of you should be in both aspects. Sometimes maybe one, sometimes maybe the other, sometimes maybe both. But it should happen both ways. Now, all right, so even though I don't want to, I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit. I'm going to let you off the hook a little bit. Because I, I have a sense for how this goes. Here's how this goes. I don't feel like I'm getting illuminated. Am I a Christian? What's going on? Okay. The illumination of the Spirit is not perfect because of your flesh. Not the Spirit that's not perfect. It's your flesh. And so sometimes we become non-receptive to the Spirit because of our own sin. We hold something. We hang on to something. And that causes us not to feel the leading of the Spirit. Look, let me give you... Okay, so... I'm sure this has never happened to any of you. But it has happened to me. You got a problem with somebody at church. You all look at me like, what? That can't happen. No. You have a problem with somebody. And I'm not saying like you hate them or something. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, you know, you just maybe you don't like that person or that irritates you or whatever. Okay? Just there's somebody you don't like. Well, when you hold on to that, and you don't repent of that, then that person, when they have a need, you don't have grace. The Spirit could move through you to help that person, but you don't because you're hanging on to the hate, the anger, the irritation. Do you see? This is the problem. We can thwart the illumination of the Spirit through our sin. Through our sin. In a perfect environment, we would not hold on to any of that sin. The Spirit would illuminate us, and we would follow the leading of the Spirit perfectly. But we don't. What does Paul the Apostle say? The things which I would do, I don't do. Or I should do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Well, it happened to him. Happened to him. Happens to us. So how do, what, what do we, how do we, how do we fix this? Well, I have a booklet. If you read the booklet, it's fixed. No, it doesn't work like that. It's sanctification. You grow in grace. You grow to be more like Christ. But let me tell you how it doesn't happen. You don't try. If we don't try, it will not happen. We have to recognize I should be letting this go. I should have grace in this area. I should focus more on the scriptures, what they say about this. I should do this or I should do that. Whatever it is, that very thought could be the illumination of the Spirit coming to your heart, telling you, you need to get better at this. You need to do this. And this should be a priority for a believer. The priority for the believer is not to do the things that they must do to fulfill their duties as a human. Whoa. Really? Is he saying what I think he's saying? I'm saying what you think I'm saying. I don't know what you think I'm saying. I'm saying, what I'm saying is, is that look, your priority in your life is not your job. It's not. You're a believer. Your priority in your life is not the meals you make at home. It's not. Your priority is none of the temporal things that you do. Are you commanded to do them? Yep. Yes, you are but they're not the priority. Your priority is to be a child of God and to grow more like Him. That's your goal. That's your priority. That's it. Are we to be good stewards of His church? Of anything He's given us? Our homes? Our cars? We are. But if it's more important to you to fix your car than it is to be more like Him, your priorities are reversed. Okay. So, let's just be honest with each other. Really easy to have that wrong, isn't it? 
because the tyranny of the urgent is those temporal things that are in front of us. The roof is leaking. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I don't want to rub any salt in that wound. <laughs> the car has a flat tire. I'm going to have to put in some overtime at work in order for me to keep my job. What's more important, that or Christ? Now look, we're, we are not in a monastery, okay? We do not say you should forget everything that's temporal and only focus on God because that's not how we're made. Adam, in a perfect environment, was given a job. In fact, he was given several jobs, was he not? Name the animals, tend the garden, right? We are still committed. Are parents told how to raise their children? Yes, it's not like, you know, okay, I got a baby. Well, good luck to you. I'm focusing on being more like Christ. No, right? That's not the way it works. We have to be striving as a priority to be more like Christ. Then the illumination of the Spirit is clearer to us. See, I brought that back. Then the illumination of the Spirit is clearer to us so that we can be more sensitive to His leading. We just forget a lot of times the other part that I just said. We just. It happens. Look, is, this a, is, there a, is there a mystery here? That this is how Satan works to tempt us? What's the first temptation he brought to Christ in the wilderness? What was the first temptation? Food! Wasn't it? Turn these stones into bread. And eat. You're hungry. Aren't you hungry? <laughs> he was hungry. First temptation that he gives to Christ there in the wilderness is to meet temporal needs. Right? And Christ, by the way, he echoes this through his ministry. Remember the woman at the well? In Samaria? You remember this? The apostles and everybody, his followers, had gone to get food. He was at the well, witnesses to the Samaritan woman, announces to her that he's the Messiah, by the way. That's when this happens. She runs off. They come back. He, they say, take and eat. And he says, I have food you don't even know about. And they say, who gave you food? I'm paraphrasing here. Who gave you food? And he says, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. He's saying, my priority is not to take time to have a meal. I'm doing something else here that's more important. Did Christ still eat? He did still eat. We don't, have, we don't know if he ate then. But we know many, many times, right? He ate. It's not like he said, well, just don't eat. It doesn't make any sense. But we need to make sure that we understand that the illumination of the Holy Spirit is something that should be real in every believer's life. You should feel the leading of the Spirit. And how you will not feel the leading of the Spirit is by quenching the Spirit, called quenching the Spirit, by basically holding on to something else as being more important than the leading of the Spirit. It is very possible that you have these strongholds in your life and you don't even recognize them. Because you think somehow that this temporal thing is more important. Well, let me just make sure. I'll just tell you this right now, and Branson and Paul can back this up at some point for me, and you could ask them, was he right about it? You just go ahead, ask those guys, and they'll correct me if I'm wrong. Because I could be, but I don't think I am. God can take care of the world without you. He does not need you to fulfill his will. So if you think, well, I have to do this, because if I don't do this, nobody is going to do this. Wrong. Wrong. See, you're assuming that God wants that done. Now, this is exactly where believers go in the elections. You hear it all the time. You see it all the time. Equating Christianity with patriotism. Do you not see this? All the time. Is that scriptural? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We're not to worship the state. 
And yet, this is the most important election for Christians ever. We have to get somebody, this person, elected into office so that he can do this to stop this from happening. No, we don't. No, we don't. And if you don't remember a presidential election where that happened, you're not thinking about it. Because it happens at every presidential election, at least, and it happens in a big way at every presidential election. I remember when, maybe some of you do, when Barack Obama was running for election, right? He was running to get elected as president, and there was this huge outcry from the Christians. We cannot let him get, if he gets elected, our country, Christianity is going to be outlawed. We're all going to be in prison. Here we are. Not in prison. It wasn't outlawed. Do we agree with everything he did? Probably not. But if he had got elected and Christians started getting persecuted and the church went underground, who's in control of that? God. It is not us. Have you ever voted for somebody who didn't get elected? Yeah. Did you feel like that's who I should vote for? You did. You voted. Sometimes you're like, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Don't do that. <laughs> we do that, though. We believe we should vote for that person, and we vote for them. And then they don't get elected. So was that the illumination of the Holy Spirit for that vote? And I, Or did I not feel the illumination? What happened there? Was there not enough believers that were sensitive to it? Because if they all had voted the right way, would we have a different outcome in the election? What are you doing? It's not up to you. It's not up to you. Why are you worried? Why are you fretting? You know, people, oh, we gotta, we've got to support this campaign. If you're a believer, you should be supporting this. And by the way, if you don't forward this to 40 of your friends, then you're not a believer. Have you ever seen those? I get those all the time. Then you're not a believer, right? If you don't forward this email to 40 of your friends, you know, you're not a patriot if you don't forward it. You know, it's all that kind of you know, ridiculousness. But some of them are exclusively for Christians. You must do this in order for this to happen. No. No, you must not. What you must do is strive to be more like Christ. Did he operate within the confines of a government? He did. Did he rebel against that government? He didn't. Did he submit to that authority? He did. To death. Right? Does the scripture say that we should submit to all acts of government regardless of what they are? No. In fact, we get a lot of examples in the New Testament of the apostles not obeying the government when they're commanded to do something that causes them, that they're basically to disobey God. So we see that, right? But Christ could have made his own defense, could he? He could have. He didn't. Why? Because that's not the will of God for him. The will of God for him was that he be crucified. That was it. We can't be so caught and hung up that we think that somehow we are the ones that are holding this ship upright. If we don't get the right votes in, we don't get the right thing done, that it's all going to fall apart because we are the only ones keeping it together. There's nobody else doing this. Seventh-day Adventists, this is their like siren call. What is it? The remnant. It's the remnant. And if you ever hear people talking about the remnant, be cautious. Where'd they get that idea? Where'd that come from? How do they know who the remnant is? How are they applying it to today? Almost always unscripturally. But Seventh-day Adventists talk about the remnant. Who's the remnant? They're the true believers. And the remnant are the ones that are going to hold the world together in their eyes. Right until the Antichrist. The remnant. They're the ones that are going to make it. I'm sorry to tell you, none of us are going to hold the world together. The only one that can hold the world together is God. And you, in your sinful flesh, do not perfectly understand his will for all things. Do you ever struggle with this? Do you ever feel like, why is God letting this happen? 
I'm sure nobody has those thoughts. Why is God allowing this to happen? Why is God allowing evil to flourish? Why is God not intervening in this situation? Why is, you don't understand, you're questioning God. Why? Because it's your flesh, that's why. And every time you do that, you can think to yourself, man, you know what, I need to be more sensitive to the leading of the Spirit and not trying to implement my will on God, but letting his will on me be known to me better. And you know what he really wants you to focus on? What's around you? What's around you? Are we commanded to go into the world and make disciples? We are. The church is commanded to do this. But not all of us individually. Not all of us individually. Not true. Where do you see that in Scripture? Did all the people of Jerusalem leave Jerusalem to go into the world to make disciples? No, they didn't. Big church in Jerusalem. Thousands added. Thousands added almost daily. See this in Scripture. Did they all then leave? Nope. They didn't. Why? God's got this. He's going to illuminate some, and some are going to go. Some aren't, because that's not what God has for them. That's how important the illumination of the Spirit is. See, we can look at the revealed Word of God and see, go into all the world and make disciples. But the illumination of the Spirit, which is also real, tells you that message means you, buddy. Get out there. Time to go to Togo or Ghana or wherever. Right? It's both. If there's no illumination, if there's no moving of the Spirit in your heart, then you don't know what God wants you to do, do you? You're guessing. You're trying to come up with something. Two footnotes for this portion of the paragraph. John 6.45 and 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 and 12. 9 through 12. All right. So what are the implications of this sufficiency? Well, the paragraph continues on. And they, that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So basically what this is saying is, is that there's other spheres of human existence that are not explicitly detailed in the scripture. In those cases, the natural revelation is to be followed following the principles that are clarified in general by the scriptures. In other words, we see right here specifically mentioned the worship of God, government of the church. Does the scriptures tell us, do we have an order of worship listed in the scripture? No, we don't. Do we know pieces and parts that are revealed in scripture for us to include as worship? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But everything isn't there. How do we determine what to do? We use the light of nature or natural revelation and Christian prudence according to the word rules of the word which are always to be observed. So, let me give you a small one. This is, I could beat this up for a long time, but we don't have time. So, let me give you a small one. Could we make the Lord's Supper a buffet for us to have our meal? No. In fact, what we're told specifically is, don't come to the Lord's table and start partaking of it. If you're hungry, eat at home. That's command. So, are we at liberty to do that? No, we're not at liberty to do that. But let me ask you a question. How many times are we supposed to pray in a morning worship service? Exactly. If that's what the Spirit leads us to do. Because otherwise, it's not in the Word of God. It doesn't tell us that. It doesn't tell us that. We know that that is a part of worship through the Scriptures. So we include it. We include it. But how many? Doesn't tell us. How many hymns or spiritual songs? Doesn't tell us. Doesn't tell us. So we have to use these other things, the light of nature and Christian prudence, to determine that. But look, there is a caveat. According to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. 
So we can't say, well, it doesn't tell us this, so we're just going to do whatever we want to. Well, okay, to some extent we can do that, except we need to make sure that we're not violating God's word somewhere, right? Worship and church government are specifically mentioned here. As the differences between denominations, by the way, were very clear. This is why they included it in the 1689. The church uses its illumination, or the light of nature, and Christian prudence to determine what should be done in those areas. And because it is not direct revelation, it may differ from church to church. So in other words, if we're using what we observe with natural revelation, and then we're using our, essentially, Christian prudence, or you could say sanctified common sense, to determine what should be done in these areas, it could vary. Right? Because it's people. So if people decide at this church we should sing five songs, and people at another church determine we should sing four songs, who's right and who's wrong? Well, both of them are right. They can do how many songs they want to. When they're wrong is when they say that church is wrong because they only did four songs. If they would have done five, they'd have been in God's grace. No, you can't say that. But you understand what I'm saying, right? So that's why we see there are some differences. Some churches do the Lord's Supper every service. Some do it once a year. Are they wrong? Neither are wrong. Why? We're not commanded how many times to do it. There's no commandment that says this. So we make a decision. And that's why it can differ from church to church. It's not direct revelation, so it can vary from church to church. Obviously, when we're talking about the illumination of the Spirit just a moment ago, the illumination of the Spirit is what should happen to the elders as they try to determine how that order of worship should go. That's what should happen to the body when we're deciding matters of church government. How are we going to do this? How is this going to work, right? The Spirit should move. And if, look, if, if the, this hasn't happened, but let's say that, that we, the elders came out with some kind of a new thing. We said, okay, we think that we should have, you know, every male member should be an elder. Okay, let's say that. So we're going to, you know, we're not going to worry about the gifts. We're going to trust that God will gift them later. And we're going to say every male is an elder, okay? And we're going to put that for a vote to change the Constitution to say that. Now, what should happen is everybody should go, (gasps) right off the bat. But then what should happen is when we go to do the vote, the illumination of the Spirit should move in our hearts to say, that seems to contradict scriptural principles. We're going to vote no. That's the illumination of the Spirit in you. That's why things go to the body for votes. We're going to vote in a couple weeks on Tom and Debbie becoming members. And look, if there was enough people in here that really knew Tom, I, no, if there, was, if there was a moving of the Spirit in here that, boy, this is a concern, the Spirit could move and the vote could be turned down. That's why we don't want to surprise the Spirit. We give it two weeks. <laughs> it's kind of funny. At any rate, you, you see what I mean? The moving of the illumination of the Spirit in the people is important to the operation of the church. It's important to the operation of the church. All right. Uh, okay, we're going to stop right there. So next time we'll pick up with the qualifications of its sufficiency. All right. Let's close in a word of prayer.